So the Foreign, Relation, uh, the Foreign Relations Committee meeting will come to order. I want to thank everybody uh, for participating in the business meeting we just had and for all of you for being here today. And I certainly want to thank our witnesses for testifying. We know them well. Uh, both of you have been great resources for this committee as we continue to develop and refine our policies towards Iran. So thank you both for, again, appearing. Um, I personally opposed the Iran deal because I did not believe it would ultimately prevent the regime from developing a nuclear weapon and would instead embolden the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism while diminishing our leverage to stop them. And even though members of this committee wound up in different places on the agreement itself, we continue to pursue vigorous oversight in a bipartisan fashion consistent with a mandate from the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act. One year after the agreement was concluded, the Iranian regime remains as serious a threat to our national security as ever before. The Obama administration readily admits this, that Iran's ongoing support for terrorism, repeated ballistic missile violations, human rights abuses, and other destabilizing activities in the region continue. To restore our resolve in our Iran policy, um, with others, I'm introducing a bipartisan uh, piece of legislation today with other committee members that mandates tough sanctions for ballistic missile activity, terrorism, and other threatening behavior. Um, I plan to work, as always, with everyone here on this legislation and ensure that U.S. policy is not held hostage by Iran's threats to walk away from the nuclear agreement. The need for this legislation is clear. Whether or not Iran is complying with a nuclear deal, their hostile intentions are clear. Just this week, the U.S. military released photos of the IRGC Navy's provocative actions around U.S. Navy sh uh, ships. Last week, the Germans released an intelligent report outlining Iran's clandestine attempts to procure illegal proliferation-sensitive procurement activities throughout 2015. Also last week, Angela Merkel warned of Iran's unabated rocket program. Iran also recently attempted to purchase five tons of carbon fiber to build centrifuge rotors for which they have no need. Meanwhile, Iran has announced charges against four dual nationals and foreigners, one of whom is an American citizen. They have also doubled down on the support for the Assad regime and Hezbollah, while Iranian forces are currently assisting on the ground to encircle the city of Aleppo. I could go on about their use of commercial airlines to support terrorism, illicit financing, financial activities, cyber threats, and more, but I'm sure that this is going to be covered fully in this hearing. I think it is worth noting that there is broad bipartisan support for new Iran legislation. I know both of our witnesses would support such legislation. Mr. Nephew, who played a prominent role in negotiating the Iran deal, wrote in his testimony today that, is, that it is reasonable to consider new legislation that would impose penalties on those who support Iran's development of and trade in missiles and conventional arms, as well as violations of Iranian human rights. We have crafted a bill that does just that, and I hope to build even broader bipartisan support for the legislation. So today, I hope our witnesses can help us in this effort to push back against Iran's continued aggression and recommend ways the Congress can remain constructively engaged. And with that, uh, again, I want to thank you for appearing here and again turn over to my friend, Ranking Member Senator Cardin.
Well, Mr. Chairman, thank you very much for convening uh, this hearing, and I thank both of our witnesses for once again being willing to come back before this committee. Uh, and this is an historic day, the one-year anniversary of the signing of the JCPOA, and it provides us an opportunity to reflect on its implementation of what has been achieved in rolling back Iran's weapons program. Over the past year, Iran has fulfilled the nuclear pieces of the agreement. On January the 16th, the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, confirmed that Iran reduced its number of operational and installed centrifuges below the 5,600, which is what Iran committed to in the JCPOA, limited its nuclear stockpile to no more than 300 kilograms of low-enriched uranium, removed the core of the Iraq reactor, making it physically incapable of producing significant amount of weapons-grade plutonium, and agreed to all the enhanced IAEA monitoring inspection, which the JCPOA required to verify that no undeclared nuclear materials or activities are occurring in Iran. Since implementation day, the IAEA has been able to confirm in its quarterly reports that Iran is upholding the nuclear portions of the deal. This is a welcome development. But we cannot evaluate the JCPOA in a vacuum. It must be considered within the strategic and regional context. From this vantage point, my worst fears expressed last year that the JCPOA would actually increase the likelihood of conflict may be coming true. Since this agreement was signed, the Iranian government has continued ballistic missile testing activities which flies in the face of the spirit of the agreement and is in violation of the UN Security Council resolution that endorsed the JCPOA. Double down in Syria now openly acknowledges casualties taking protecting the regime of Bashar Assad. Funded and supported the Iraqi Shiite militia in Iraq that have participated in sectarian violence. Restored relations with Hamas, a US designated foreign terrorist organization committed to Israel's destruction deployed vessels full of lethal aid to the Houthi fighters in Yemen, incited riots to attack Saudi diplomatic facilities in Iran, increased the number of executions, and is doing nothing to improve the abysmal human rights situation in their country. Last year, after deep reflection and evaluation, I ultimately did not support the JCPOA. But I was also clear that if it was implemented, my priority would be in ensuring that our government has all the necessary tools and resources to implement it. I'm also committed to addressing the weaknesses beyond the nuclear agreement, the troublesome issues left unaddressed, many of which I just enumerated. This agreement has the best chance of succeeding if its weaknesses are squarely addressed. Congressional action should not focus on undermining the agreement by passing legislation that clearly violates the JCPOA, Instead, we should be working together to strengthen it. U.S. policy on Iran has always been strongest when Congress stands together united. I introduced the Iran Policy Act last year, over 10 months ago, along with many of my colleagues who both supported and opposed the JCPOA. And that legislation does exactly that, to strengthen the JCPOA. So, Mr. Chairman, I look forward to the work of this committee in bringing us together. There is overwhelming consensus in this Congress of a common objective. To prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon state? Yes. 
and to also take action to prevent the other nefarious actions of Iran, whether it is ballistic missile violations, conventional weapons, human rights violations, interference in other countries. We all agree that we need to take action in order to deal with that. But let's do that in a bipartisan way, not in a divisive way. The bill that I filed on behalf of many of my colleagues provides for rigorous oversight of the agreement, including re re uh, additional reporting on Iran's nuclear research and development activities and the use of sanction relief. Clarifies U.S. policy to make it clear that Iran does not have an inherent right to enrich and that all options remain on the table, including military options, to prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon. Continues sanctions on Iranian entities and individuals engaged in ballistic or cruise missile proliferation and terrorism or human rights violations and pro provides for expedited considerations of new sanctions if Iran directs or conducts an act of terrorism against the United States or substantially increases its operational or financial support for terrorist organizations that threaten the U.S. interests or allies. The, the bill importantly authorizes additional specific security assistance for Israel. There are also several other steps that we must work together going forward. Mr. Chairman, we must reauthorize the Iran Sanctions Act for another 10 years so that the threat of snapback sanctions remains a credible deterrent. We must urge our partners in the P5 plus 1 to coordinate responses to Iran's troubling behavior. Last week's UN report on Iran's ballistic missile activities is a perfect opportunity. As the Iranian regime continues its destructive pattern of supporting terrorism, proliferation of weapons, threatening Israel, and violating basic human rights, the Congress has to remain strong and united in, in countering this warped world view. Thank you again, Mr. Chairman, for convening this hearing and for bringing to us two distinguished uh, panelists to, to continue our discussion. I look forward to that discussion. I look forward to working with you and all the members of this committee on how we best can deal with the Iranian threat. Well, thank you, and thank you for your comments and the way we've been able to work together on so many issues. Uh, I think both of us, uh, in our attempts to deal with uh, what Iran is illicitly doing, um, have meticulously stayed away from anything that compromises the JCPOA. And uh, I think we both understand that it's our committee's in our pushing back against Iran, that uh, doing anything that would attempt to undermine that would not be in the, in the, uh, if you will, the, uh, the mode that we've uh, continued to operate. I realize there are some bills that are coming out of the House that may do that, but uh, I think you'll see that the legislation that was uh, introduced this morning uh, in a bipartisan way uh, by members of the committee um, is, is one that does not do that, does not undermine the JCPOA, but does push back against uh, the illicit activities that are underway will be discussed in just a moment. So uh, thank you for that. I look forward to continuing to work with you. Our first witness uh, is Mr. Mark Dubowitz, the Executive Director for the Foundation of Defense of Democracies. Our second witness is Mr. Mr. Richard Nephew, Program Director for Economic Statecraft, Sanctions, and Energy Markets at the Center of Global Energy Policy at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. We want to thank you both for being here. Um, we're obviously very interested in your comments. If you could summarize those in about five minutes or so, those uh, without objection, your written testimony will be entered into the record. 
Um, and with that, uh, let's just start in the order you were introduced. Thank Great. you. Uh, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, members of the committee, on behalf of FDD and its Center on Sanctions Illicit Finance, thank you for the opportunity to testify. It's an honor to be back before the committee. It's also an honor to testify with Richard Nephew, whose work and service to our country I greatly admire. It is worth recalling why this nuclear deal is fatally flawed. It provides Iran with multiple patient pathways to nuclear weapons capability by placing limited temporary constraints on its nuclear activities. These nuclear sunset provisions begin to expire in eight years and mostly disappear over a period of 10 to 15. Iran will become a threshold nuclear power with an industrial-sized nuclear program, near-zero nuclear breakout capacity, an advanced centrifuge-powered clandestine sneak-out capability, an ICBM program, access to heavy weaponry, greater regional hegemony, and a more powerful economy increasingly immune to Western sanctions. The deal already has provided Iran with substantial economic relief that helped the regime avoid a severe economic crisis and return to a modest recovery path. Tehran badly needed hard currency, which it received, and which frees up funds for the financing of its malign activities. Obama administration officials repeatedly have pledged that the U.S. would continue to enforce non-nuclear sanctions and, quote, oppose Iran's destabilizing policies with every national security tool available. Iran's leaders, however, view any imposition of sanctions as a violation of the deal and grounds to snap back their nuclear program. Those threats have effectively deterred Washington from imposing meaningful non-nuclear sanctions. This is what I have called Iran's nuclear snapback. In fear of this nuclear snapback, the administration has missed numerous opportunities to counter Tehran's expanding malign activities. Tehran has tested nuclear-capable ballistic missiles seven times since July 2015 in violation of UN Security Council resolutions. Iran attempted to illegally procure materials that could be used for its nuclear, missile, chemical, and biological weapons programs, as recent reports from Germany's domestic intelligence agencies and David Albright's institute have assessed. German intelligence reportedly indicates that this is continuing, which is in contravention of the JCPOA. And disturbingly, over the past two years, according to Mr. Albright, quote, the Obama administration has inhibited federal investigations and prosecutions of alleged Iranian illegal procurement efforts. The administration also has not requested that the IAEA conduct follow-on inspections, including physical ones, at the Parchin military base after finding uranium particles highly suggestive of military nuclear activities. As former IAEA Deputy Director Ali Heinen has explained, this is standard procedure under the Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement with Iran. Not to do so sets a bad precedent for future inspections. The administration has imposed no human rights designation since the JCPOA and only three since Rouhani took power in 2013, even as Iran's human rights record further deteriorates and the regime holds hostage a number of dual nationals and refuses to provide information on the whereabouts of Robert Levinson. In total, the administration has issued only 20 new designations since last July, as compared to more than 100 in the 18-month period of the interim agreement, according to former Treasury official Catherine Bauer. These designations are highly ineffectual and don't impose the costs needed to change Tehran's calculus. Committee members, it's worth remembering, for the Supreme Leader, the JCPOA was not the end of the negotiations. It was merely the beginning. And Tehran is demanding ever greater sanctions relief and is seeking to legitimize itself without changing its illicit conduct. The Iranian government is engaged in a full court press to persuade the United States to greenlight Iran's access to US dollar transactions with the administration officials leaving open the possibility of offshore dollarization. Iran has pressured FATF to remove it from its financial blacklist, 
While FATF refused to do so recently, it did suspend mandatory countermeasures for one year and opened up the possibility for future changes. Iran is also seeking membership in the WTO, which would severely curtail Washington's future ability to use financial and economic sanctions. The administration should be asked, what is its position on Iran's membership? The administration is also greenlining about $50 billion in Boeing and Airbus aircraft deals with Iran Air, which continues the malign activities for which it was originally sanctioned. To recall, Iran's aviation industry is dominated by the IRGC and comprised of four still-sanctioned airlines. If Washington does not confront the regime's dangerous activities now, future presidents will have insufficient, peaceful leverage to respond to an expanding Iranian military nuclear program, regional aggression, and global terrorism. If a future military option becomes necessary, Iran will be much stronger and the consequences more severe. In my written testimony, I recommend 16 ways that Congress can legislate non-nuclear sanctions fully consistent with the JCPOA. I would be happy to discuss them during Q&A. Thank you for the opportunity to testify. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mr. Nephew. Thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and other distinguished members of this committee for inviting Mark and me to speak here today. Mark and I differ on the JCPOA, but not our shared commitment to address threats from Iran. A year has passed since negotiations concluded on the text of the JCPOA. Much has been achieved, but there is more work to be done to deal with the range of threats posed by Iran and to ensure that the deal delivers on its promises. Thus far, the IAEA has verified that Iran is doing its part and is now farther away from being able to construct a nuclear device. Moreover, because of the enhanced monitoring, including IEA access rights that it's been exercising, we would have nearly the full balance of the breakout timeline to mount a response to Iran if it cheats. This includes the option to use force, as President Obama has made clear. We must be vigilant, but prudent and measured. For example, though German intel has reported on Iranian procurement efforts in 2015 that are troubling, there is no clear public information that this continued after the JCPOA entered into force in January. And overreacting to reports such as this would be inadvisable. Taking a measured approach is also important because the United States and its partners made their own commitments. And Iranians are even now debating whether we are cheating or whether their continuing economic difficulties are the result of other, more systemic issues. The Iranian economy has improved since President Rouhani's election in 2013. And as of today, Iran has been able to regain some of the market share it lost when U.S. sanctions clamped down on oil exports and other industries are showing signs of life. Internally, inflation has been reduced from around 45% to around 10%. Iran's currency has stabilized. And there are indications that the Iranian banking system is finally recovering from the insolvency brought on by years of bad loans and damage from sanctions. On the other hand, though unemployment is down, it remains in the double digits. GDP growth has returned after years of contraction, but Iran is building on a far weaker, smaller base than prior to the Ahmadinejad years. And Iran has yet to see major external investment pour in. Iran's difficulties primarily stem from three factors. It's complicated and onerous domestic business environment, residual sanctions and the threat of snapback, and low oil prices. The problems that these three factors create are interrelated, and together they contribute to the risk-reward calculations by international businesses that remain heavily weighted to risk. Remedying this combination of problems is going to be difficult for Iran, notwithstanding what the United States chooses to do. The United States has executed its responsibilities under the JCPOA to the letter and need not, as a legal matter, do anything further. But 
The United States does have an interest in ensuring that Iranian leaders believe and can credibly argue that they saw economic benefit from the JCPOA beyond the president's, president's stability to preserve the deal and to persuade the international community of our sincerity. We can do much simply by offering clarity on our remaining sanctions. Updated frequently asked questions and licensing policy statements would help. The judicious use of executive licensing authority, for example, for the provision of US compliance and legal services to foreign companies who seek to do business in Iran and in the United States would also help. These steps will not solve Iran's problems. Only Iran can do that. But they would make foreign business activity with Iran easier to pursue and demonstrate that the United States takes seriously its responsibilities under the deal. At the same time, we should continue to confront Iran for its support for terrorism, destabilizing activities in the region, and violations of human rights. Sanctions designations for those supporting these activities should continue to be issued when sufficient evidence exists. New legislation that imposes penalties on those who contribute to Iran's behavior in these areas is also reasonable, though much already exists in law and the specifics of what's proposed merit close scrutiny. The provisions of SASADA that give our sanctions global effect should continue to be leveraged. In this way, and as demonstrated in Iran's inability to reconnect fully with the global economy thus far, Iran can and will pay a price for its policy choices even under the current sanctions framework. But as we use such authorities, we must ensure that in our zeal to confront Iran's other illicit conduct, we do not inadvertently create grounds for Iran to walk away from the JCPOA. This is not acquiescing to nuclear blackmail from Iran, just as it is not sanctions blackmail to hold open the possibility of snapback. This is acknowledging that we have an interest in the nuclear deal, and so do our partners in the region. Canceling the JCPOA would recreate the existential threat that Israeli General Eisenhower, for example, declared over just months ago. And seeing whether a deal with Iran can be managed while dealing with these challenges could also create a foundation for a long-term better relationship that may help us address these challenges further. Many in Iran have signaled no such willingness, and security forces in Iran have sought to prevent any opening, including through the most basic and unconscionable of maneuvers, the arrest of dual nationals, including C. McNamazi and his father. These are activities of strong men in positions of power, but not confident ones. They betray a deep sense of trepidation and fear that the system they have built may be unraveling. And last July, I suggested in this room that these people face an existential threat of their own. I see nothing to change this assessment in their behavior or developments over the past year. Our challenge in this is to avoid contributing to the power base of Iran's security services by playing once more the villain while advancing our own interests. It will not be easy, and there are no guarantees of success, but it is worth the attempt. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you both. It's uh, great to have two highly intelligent and knowledgeable witnesses who have slightly differing points of view. So uh, with that, I'm going to defer to the ranking member and uh, reserve my time for interjections. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, let me, um, I, mean, I think what we are really um, uh, focusing on, what is the appropriate role for Congress in accomplishing our objective to change Iranian behavior, whether it's, it's nuclear proliferations or whether it's support of terrorism or it's a ballistic missile program. And we act through passing legislation and we act by oversight. Both are critically important and both led up to the types of negotiations that were possible in regards to the Iran nuclear agreement. So I think we can learn from our behavior and what we were able to do in the past. So when I look at what would be now useful, because there's still significant problems with Iran, I think everyone acknowledges that. I don't think anyone disagrees that 
uh, Iran is not, uh, that Iran's behavior is not where it needs to be. So, and we all, I think, acknowledge now that we're not going to take action that would violate the JCPOA, at least that's the chairman and I have, have agreed on that. Uh, the question is, what can Congress now do? So I look at it and I say, you know, one, one thing we can clearly do is improve our oversight, get reports on the sanction relief, how much funds have been made available to Iran, get clear information as to how that has been used. We'd like to see it used for its people, but is it used just to increase terrorist activities or support for um, uh, the, the nefarious actions that we are trying to avoid? To me, I'd see, I'm, record doesn't reflect head uh, nods, but I saw both witnesses nodding affirmatively on that. Uh, another thing we can do, and this became very clear to me in my visits to the Gulf states, is that we have an articulated regional strategy to protect our allies in the region. They're very concerned that there may be a new chapter in what's happening in the Middle East as far as the power change, and that Iran might be a more significant player which jeopardizes the security of Gulf states. So I think having an articulate, supported congressional involvement on a regional strategy would make sense. Third, of course, is that we know Iran's, one of its major targets is Israel. So making it clear our commitment to Israel's security seems to me another matter that becomes a very important fact of congressional policy. But that brings me to sanctions, which is where we seem to put a lot of our attention. One thing to me is clear, and I would think would be something that we all could agree on and try to get done immediately, is the extension of the Iran Sanction Act. Because if snapback is to really be effective, you have to have the law beyond December of this year. So why don't we just get that over with, get that done, because we are running out of a clock on legislative days here, and I would hope that through the leadership of this committee and through others we could get that done and I don't think that would be difficult. I think we could probably get that completed. I would hope we would also be willing to look at expedited considerations of sanction legislation if Iran participates in, viol in actions that violate our policies. Uh, I would think that's something we could get done. And the reason I mention these issues, they're all incorporated in legislation I filed on behalf of other members, but I've had conversations with our P5 partners. I've met with some of the direct negotiators that were negotiating on behalf of the partner countries. I've, I wanted to understand because I hear they were not happy about Congress taking action, and I wanted to find out why. Because wouldn't they want us to be strong against Iranian non-nuclear violations? And the answer is they do want us to be strong, but they are concerned as to whether this is just a, a, a piling on or a backward way of violating the nuclear agreement which is not what I want to see happen. And that's why I think we have to be very strategic as to how we deal with new sanction legislation. And if we deal with sanction legislation that provides a statutory basis for the executive sanction regime that is currently in existence, to me that's a very sound basis for us to be on. And then we don't run the risk of whether Congress is supporting a very strong position uh, in that regard. So I, I know that's a, a pretty, I, I just really want to get, start with Mr. Nephew if I could, as to whether we can get this surgically done in a way that doesn't interfere with the support we need from our P5 partners. 
Senator, I, I very much agree with your comments. I think in, in total, in terms of the challenges that uh, we face and the kinds of things that we need to do to respond to them. I, I also agree that there is a way, as Chairman Corker uh, pointed out from my written statement, of crafting sanctions legislation that is complementary to the JCPOA and keeps within the boundaries of the JCPOA, but it does. It comes at, down to the end of the specifics and, and what's involved and the degree to which it affords executive flexibility, again, for any president that might come into office to be able to respond to circumstances that, that may evolve uh, over time. Thank you. Ms. If you wouldn't respond quickly, we're... Yeah, Senator Cardin, I, I agree, absolutely, but I think the, the most important thing that Congress can do is reestablish American deterrence. I think over the past year, American deterrence has been severely degraded because the Iranians don't believe that we're willing to use non-nuclear sanctions to respond to their malign activities, and I think if we don't reestablish deterrence, we're tying the hands of the next administration and effectively paralyzing U.S.-Iran policy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. And, and just for what it's worth, I, I agree with the comments that have been made and um, in, in crafting what we put forth today. We tried to do exactly what Mr. Nephew and Mr. Dibowitz just, just said. And uh, I will say I, I don't think the administration wants to see anything happened this year, including extension of ISA. Um, and I do think they are um, tiptoeing around issues and allowing, uh, again, Iran to continue to press the outer limits. And I do think it's our role to push back. And I think we've struck the appropriate balance with what was introduced this morning. Senator Risch. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for holding the hearing. Uh, the hearing underscores what a lot of us have been saying for a long time, and that is this was a really, really bad deal when it was made. It is a much worse deal today. Uh, this business of taking a bad boy who's doing 100 things bad and saying, oh, well, we're going to negotiate with you on one of those, and gosh, you're doing better now on that one thing. The other 99 things have gotten worse instead of better uh, is not a victory by any stretch of the imagination. Mr. Nephew, your suggestion that we should help Iran by clarifying this and doing that, count me out. I don't want to help these people. Until they change their ways, I have no interest whatsoever in helping these people. And indeed, I think uh, we need to uh, double down on the sanctions and, uh, and get after this and, and uh, convince uh, the world that uh, these people are going to have to change their ways. They're going to pay the price for it. As far as counting on our, our so-called partners in the P uh, plus five uh, group, th these people aren't going to help us. Uh, as frequently happens when we do the right thing in the world, we're going to wind up going it alone. Uh, sometimes we put a, a facade over the top of it with other people giving a nod that, uh, that it's okay, but we're going to have to go alone on this. We need to continue to do the right thing, and uh, th this uh, 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 regime in Iran is going to continue to do uh, the wrong thing. Uh, they signaled that immediately following uh, the uh, agreement being put in place when it started to uh, launch uh, uh, ICBMs and, uh, and flaunted the world, really, uh, and, and said, look, this thing doesn't mean a thing as far as our uh, uh, movement towards uh, a nuclear power. So I, th th this thing is, uh, it's time to turn the page with this administration, get a new administration in, and, and hopefully we'll toughen up and uh, do the right thing. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Coons. My apologies, uh, Chairman. I um, enjoyed. Not used to being called in front of Senator Menendez. So I'll filibuster. Not used to being from called quite so briskly. Like so so. Um, let me thank, thank you, uh, Chairman Corker and uh, Ranking Member Cardin, for 
uh, convening this hearing and uh, to the remarkable witnesses we've had, uh, your mastery of the details uh, of the JCPOA and of its um, shortcomings uh, and its successes, uh, I find um, important and refreshing, and I'm uh, grateful um, that this committee continues to do its job uh, of real oversight. Um, as someone um, who narrowly agreed to support the agreement, um, characterizing it as the least bad option uh, before us at the time, I also made a commitment to continue uh, to acknowledge its successes and its shortcomings uh, and to work wherever possible with my colleagues uh, to address those shortcomings. Uh, and a year later, a year later uh, my rough assessment is that the deal is working as intended. Uh, and I agree with the witnesses that some of the flaws of the deal have also been exposed. And so I will continue to call uh, for Congress to do three things. First, as other crises around the world emerge and take the attention of the current and future administration, the current and future Congress, um, we have to continue to push the executive branch, uh, Treasury, state, energy, defense, and the intelligence community to monitor, enforce, and implement this agreement so that violations um, small marginal violations uh, are known and are promptly addressed. Uh, and that means holding Iran accountable in every way possible. Second, we have to work together to find ways to strengthen the administration's ability to push back against Iran's continuing bad behavior outside the four corners of the JCPOA. And then last, we have to maintain a credible conventional military deterrent uh, to protect U.S. interests and our allies in the region, including, of course, Israel. Uh, and in each of these areas, a rigorous, fair, and responsible oversight by Congress is crucial. Um, so if I might, uh, Mr. Dubowitz, um, you said not tear up the deal, um, but you recommend, I think it was 16 ways that we can legislatively um, strengthen non-nuclear sanctions in ways that, that you believe are fully compliant with the JCPOA. And if there's a core disagreement, I think, between the administration and members of this committee uh, and within members of this committee, it's whether, it's what is our degree of freedom to legislate new sanctions provisions um, without violating the JCPOA. Um, help me, if you would, um, hear your view. What happens if the JCPOA uh, begins to unravel and break down? Um, will the rest of the P5 plus one continue to enforce it without us? Will Iran exploit the difference between the United States and its European partners? Will Iran ramp up centrifuge production and enrichment? And will that isolate us from our partners? Uh, and what do you view as the most critical ways that we could legislate that you also believe complies in full with the JCPOA? Well, thank you, Senator Coons. First of all, I think it's absolutely critical that we send a clear message to the Iranians now and certainly in time for the next administration that we do not interpret the JCPOA as precluding non-nuclear sanctions. The Iranians have made it very clear they do. Right. I think the administration's activity to date confirms the Iranian interpretation. We've had merely a handful of new sanctions. They've been small designations. They've been highly ineffectual. So we need to send a clear message to Iran that we are willing to enforce the deal vigorously, and we're willing to use non-nuclear sanctions to push back against their malign activities. The legislation that was introduced today by uh, Senators Corker and Menendez and, and uh, Rubio and others, I think is critical because it does not violate the JCPOA. It is fully consistent with the JCPOA. And not only does it give some interesting new authorities, but most importantly, the president is not using his existing authorities in the way that he committed to you last summer. And so of the 16 recommendations I have, I think in principle, what I'd like to see is the kinds of non-nuclear sanctions that uh, punish the Revolutionary Guards for their continued malign activities, 
and vigorously enforce the JCPOA against Iran's continued illicit procurement activities, including most recently in Germany. Um, thank you. If I might, since I'm about to run out of time, one more question for Mr. Nephew. Something I think concerns both of you and you both referenced, which is that in 10 to 15 years, um, there are legitimate concerns um, about Iran's industrial-scale nuclear um, enrichment program. What steps should we be taking now to ensure that Iran doesn't ramp up missile, excuse me, fissile material production when key restrictions expire 10 to 15 years from now? And how do we build a new set of restrictions that Iran will face as those in the JCPOA um, expire? Thank you, Senator. I, I think there's a lot that we can do. And in fact, in a, a report that I issued with Bob Einhorn via the Brookings Institution about a month ago, I, I laid out a number of, of ideas. I'll mention two here. First off, I don't think it's uh, absolutely true that the Iranians will immediately break to expand their fissile material production capabilities once the deal's main restrictions expire. They're going to have some decisions to make, including whether or not they want to be uh, threatening other countries in the region with their own potential nuclear options. And so I think the Iranians will already have some sense of, of need to at least balance the potential security dilemma they could create for themselves. Beyond that, I think there is an opportunity here to look to expand the application of the restrictions and transparency steps in the deal to make them part of a broader international framework and potentially even a regional multinational nuclear concept that helps to govern the whole spread of nuclear technology throughout the region. Takes the nuclear deal we have with Iran and attempts to build on it as a foundation for nuclear restraint in the region. Well, thank you both, um, and I look forward to another round of questions. Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Neighbor, I did not vote for the deal either, and I share some of the eloquently expressed concerns of, the, of Senator Risch, but my biggest concern during the whole thing was whether or not we would have any real access to inspect in and on the site in Iran. To what extent since the in this last year are you familiar with inspections that have taken place, the ease with which they've been gained access, and the thoroughness of those inspections by the IAEA? Well, Senator, I mean, I think the IAEA has reported uh, that it has been able to verify Iran's commitments under the terms of the nuclear deal. In their report, uh, just issued last May, they noted that they had gained access to sites and to other locations in Iran under the additional protocols, complementary access provisions. Now, the IE report doesn't identify the specific facilities to which the IEA went, so I'm not a, in a position here, especially since I'm no longer in government, to provide you with a list of where they went and how they, they experienced their access. But the IEA in uh, February reported that it had a problem with heavy water uh, in Iran. The IEA reported in May that it had difficulties with Iran uh, working on centrifuge rotors that uh, uh, it shouldn't have been working on. So the IEA's absence of reporting on difficulties of access and cooperation from the Iranians, to some extent, is a helpful indicator that they are getting the kind of access and support that they feel that they need. And I think we would need the IEA to be able to tell us whether or not they're having uh, any kind of difficulty. They, they didn't say that in their latest two reports. Senator, if I, if I could just jump into that. I mean, one of the things we do know is that the IAEA cannot get physical access to the Parchin military base. They relied on a self-inspection regime that the Iranians uh, set up. That revealed that there were actually Iranian particles in Parchin. The IAEA was then in a position to insist on the Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement that Iran has signed with the IAEA that they get follow-on inspections. And that's setting a dangerous precedent because what we are effectively saying through the Parchin precedent is that for future military sites 
We're not going to insist on physical inspections. And even when we, in, when we use self-inspections and we find nuclear materials there, we're not going to insist on follow-on inspections. And I think that's setting a, a terribly bad precedent for the future and a, and a great situation for the Iranians who can always invoke the Parchin precedent to keep the IAEA out of military sites. Yeah, Senator, if I can just respond to that. I, I think you know, Mark usefully points out an area in which the IEA was able to get access that it deems sufficient to be able to address lingering questions associated with Parchin. And under the terms of the deal, the United States has given the IEA the discretion to implement its uh, uh, commit the commitments that it took on as part of the deal. Um, I, I think that the IEA has demonstrated in numerous other cases um, its willingness to take access requests forward if they believe they've got real problems they need to address. And I think the fact that the IEA did not go back into Parchin because of two particular particles, at least not yet, shouldn't be indicative of a broader problem with IEA inspector access or IEA inspector uh, uh, you know, efforts. In fact, if you go back in the history from 2003 to 2005, the IEA was inspecting military facilities throughout Iran, including uh, uh, Parchin. And I think this demonstrates that the IEA, when it believes there is value and merit in going into a facility, it can structure inspection protocols and inspector access to get what it needs to get. And yet we don't know, for example, as Mr. Albright and Dr. Heinen have pointed out repeatedly, we don't know what happened to the uranium stockpiles from which those particles uh, were, were, were brought. So, so exactly what is going on? Where, where are the uranium stockpiles? Uh, what has happened since? Why, why is the IAEA not insisting on follow-on inspections? And the notion that somehow the IAEA is always going to be this apolitical, technical body, I think also flies in the face of the history of the IAEA, where there have been times under different IAEA leaders where the body has been highly politicized. So I think it's Congress's role to insist that the administration hold the IAEA's feet to the fire and that we don't establish bad precedents that the Iranians are going to exploit in the future. Mr. Neighbor. Sorry, with, with respect, Senator, you might have other questions, but I, I, I did want to just put one, one point out there. It, we go back to the look at the history of the IAEA. Let, let's look at one of the most political director generals that we've ever had, Mohammed el Baradai. It was under Mohammed el Baradai that the IAEA demanded access to military facilities inside of Iran, including to the Parchin facility. And so the idea that the IAEA is going to somehow automatically be a problem because in one instance they're not demanding access again, I, I think lacks foundation. We have had experiences before where the U.S and the IEA differed strongly about the case in Iran and what to do with it. And at the same time, the IEA demanded access and conducted its inspection authorities as it was set out to do in its charter. This is not the time to be establishing bad precedents that the Iranians can invoke in the future. Well, I agree with that. And I, I'm glad y'all took the time you did to expound on it because my, my big concern is that the Iranians will cheat. We know that. In fact, in your paper, in your opening statement, Dr. Neighbor, you stayed in there. The, the, the risk of them not cheating is not zero. They probably will, and we've got to be able to catch them. I just worry that the inspection provisions the Iranians insisted on in the JCPOA left them enough wiggle room where it was the fox guard in the hen house in some cases. And I want to make sure we're getting as much oversight out of Congress as possible. So if there is cheating going on, we can detect it as soon as possible. And, and Senator Eisenhower, it's not theoretical cheating. The Iranians were cheating last year. They were illicitly procuring nuclear, chemical, bio, and missile technology from Germany. They were procuring carbon fiber in great quantities that have no other utility than to actually use for advanced centrifuges. 
And if that, has, if that only happened in 2015, as Mr. Nephew said, despite the fact the Wall Street Journal is reporting that German intelligence officials say that it continues into 2016, I think it's deeply troubling that they were conducting these illicit activities during the negotiations up to the JCPOA and between July of last year when the JCPOA was reached and December. I also point out some interesting facts in that German intelligence report that says explicitly that they are concerned that those activities are continuing. I don't know why a report coming out in 2016 would say that those activities may be continuing if those activities had actually stopped on December 31st, 2015. So I think it's a great example of how the Iranians continue to test the JCPOA and that in the face of non-enforcement, the Iranians will know that they have a green light to continue to push at the international community and see what they can get away with. My time's expired. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, uh, I'd like to submit for the record a report issued by the U.S. Government Accountability Office at my request along with Senator Kirk. Without objection. Uh, I'm releasing I assume it, it has something to do with the subject at hand. I'm sorry, Mr. Chairman. Uh, <laughs> it talks about how great you are as a chairman. No. Uh, that says, that uh, we, we have no it's objection. It's very you lengthy, move on. too. So uh, it says the Iran nuclear agreement, the International Atomic Energy Agency's authorities, resources, and challenges. And it's a full accounting of the GAO's findings with respect to the IAEA's capacity for meeting the tremendous obligations that we have thrust upon it by the JCPOA. Uh, first and foremost, the GAO report highlights the IAEA's challenge in detecting undeclared nuclear materials and activities. It raises the issue of whether the IAEA will ever be able to verify that Iran has no undeclared nuclear materials and activities, as international inspectors are supposed to verify this before reaching the so-called broader conclusion on Iran's nuclear program. If the IAEA reaches a broader conclusion on Iran's nuclear program before October 18th of 2023, that then triggers the nuclear deal's transition day, which is supposed to eliminate even more international sanctions against Iran. Yet, in what critics of the deal describe as a major flaw, including myself, transition day still happens on October 18th, 2023, no matter what and even if Iran doesn't get a clean bill of nuclear health from the IAEA. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. And the report goes on to list a whole other uh, series of challenges that the IAEA has as we move forward. Now, this is the entity which I have a great deal of respect for and have supported and have sought to improve its budget, but that we have placed the, a good part of the national security of the United States in in terms of the Iranian nuclear program. So I would commend the report to my colleagues, and I, I hope that it it raises some serious concerns about our, from my colleagues about what we need to do. I'd like to turn to Mr. Dubovitz for a moment. Uh, first of all, congratulations on joining us as a United States citizen, so we, uh, we appreciate Thank that. Thank you, sir. Uh, and secondly, uh, I want to ask you a series of questions. Has Iran uh, ultimately uh, not continued to pursue uh, acts of terrorism in pursuit of entities that pursue terrorism? They continue to support terrorism. Has Iran not continued to pursue missile development and the firing of missiles, at least against what used to be the UN Security Council's resolution, but as most recently Ban Ki-moon said, against the spirit of the UN Security Council? They continue their missile activities. Has Iran uh, not continued to engage in destabilizing the region? 
they've actually probably accelerated their efforts to destabilize the region. Has Iran not continued to commit human rights violations against its people? According to the UN Special Rapporteur, things are getting worse, not better. Has Iran uh, not engaged in cyber uh, attack abilities? Again, according to authorities, their cyber capabilities are getting more aggressive. So, uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, regardless of whether you supported or opposed the JCPOA, the reality is, is that there is a wide universe of uh, nefarious acts by Iran uh, that are against the national interests and I would argue the national security of the United States. And I cannot understand uh, this view that we cannot act on those uh, nefarious activities independent of the JCPOA. And the failure to do so, I think, runs at the risk of our national interests and our national security and of our allies uh, in the region. Uh, I, I think uh, I, I may have caught the tail end of it, but uh, I, I think uh, you may have uh, been asked about the, the German uh, uh, intelligence reports that says that Iran is still pursuing, even in the midst of the JCPOA, still pursuing the purchases of dual-use technology, which can also pursue their uh, interests in missile and other technology. Is that a fair statement? That is correct. Yeah. So it's in that context, uh, Mr. Chairman, that I've been pleased to join with you, uh, and I hope others will as well, in a uh, legislative effort uh, that seeks to pursue these different uh, nefarious activities of Iran, to pursue their terrorist actions, to pursue their destabilization of the region in Yemen and Syria, to pursue their missile technology. You know, I pressed very hard uh, when the administration here was testifying. I said there is a difference between Iran shall not deploy missile technology, and Iran is called upon, and now we see that. And the results of that are consequential. Uh, I press very hard about the question of shouldn't we have uh, the ability and shouldn't we pursue the reauthorization of the Iran Sanctions Act that I authored along with others on this committee uh, that I think was a critical element of bringing Iran to the table. And every time, all we heard was, uh, well, we don't need to deal with that now. Had we dealt with it then, then maybe it uh, would have sent a very clear message that no matter what, we're going to have a continuing set of sanctions to be called upon to snap back to. And I know the suggestion that if you, in fact, go ahead uh, and see Iran violating anything, that we can always pass sanctions. The problem is that those sanctions take time to implement. We have to give the world warning again that, in fact, these sanctions are in effect. Uh, we did that in the first round. We had to give countries and companies across the globe notice that, in fact, there were going to be sanctionable activities. And that took six to eight months. And then your enforcement mechanism after that took time. So the time frame that it would be necessary to get a sanctions regime back in place ultimately drives uh, the time in which you have bought for being notified of uh, the potential to cross the nuclear threshold towards a weapon. So that's why, as part of our legislation, the Iran Sanctions Act is reauthorized as well. So uh, I hope that regardless of the views of colleagues on the question of the uh, JCPOA, that there is a universe of real consequential actions by Iran that are largely are going to unresponded.
And for so long as they go to unresponded, I think we have a consequence. It's in that spirit that I've joined you, Mr. Chairman, in the legislation. It's in that spirit I hope we can join others. For me, this is not about politics. This is about policy. It's about the national interest and security of the United States. It's something I've been following for 20 years since I was in the House of Representatives. Uh, and I, th I think it's very important. And I commend it to the rest of our colleagues. Well, thank you. And I'm going to make my first interjection, if I could. I think the, the concern that we have, and it is bipartisan, <clears throat> is that the JCPOA is, by default, becoming our Middle East policy. And we aren't pushing back against the nefarious activities that Iran has underway. And I think that's the purpose of the legislation that's been introduced, is to continue to push back uh, against those activities that are counter to our national interests, counter to, uh, to the, the benefit of our, of our friends and allies in the region. And I do think that our friends in Europe and other places uh, are so concerned about the JCPOA, they're unwilling to do those things that need to be done to push back. And that's why, by the way, these, these snapback sanctions are worthless. They're worthless. They are worthless because we know that Russia and China is gonna prevent, is gonna prevent any action from taking place at the UN Security Council. So um, that's uh, uh, to meaning that, yes, they, there may in place be snapped back, but they're not going to cooperate with that. And so that means that they are, in essence, uh, no longer uh, universal like they were in the past. So uh, I uh, appreciate what you just mentioned. I thank our witnesses for being here. And uh, with that, Senator Perdue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Mr. Nephew and Mr. Dubo. It's good to see you both again. Thank you for your testimonies and, and your hard work in this uh, endeavor. A year later, here we are. Um, I just want to highlight a couple of things. I've got a question on the German intelligence report. Uh, I will start with you, Mr. Dubowitz. Uh, but I want to highlight my concern about where we are with Iran. I mean, I thought we were naive last year. I was criticized by using that word. And yet, the, the attempt here, it seemed to me, was to accommodate Iran in this nuclear deal and then thereby encouraging them to join the spirit of the community of nations. That seemed to be the overall strategy. And yet, here we are within the first 12 months. The, we know about the ballistic missile launches, seven illicit launches, harassment of U.S. forces, not only the, the Navy uh, sailors that were illegally detained, but also some 10% of U.S. crossings of the Strait of Hormuz uh, is, uh, are, are characterized as unsafe by the Navy because of involvement of Iranian interactions. We know that there are still U.S. hostages, some with dual nationalities, but four US or several U.S. hostages still being detained. Four confirmed reports of, uh, of interdicted, right, uh, interdicted arms shipments from Iran to Yemen to the to the Houthis. Um, we see violations of travel sanctions. Uh, the general uh, in control of the IRGC has made four illicit trips to uh, the Soviet Union. We know the procurement attempts in Germany now coming out from their intelligence reports, but also from the Institute of Science and International Society, so or security. I could go on, but these are these are really concerning. It doesn't seem to me that the evidence is that they're trying, Iran is trying to join the spirit of the community of nations at all. And so they have an agenda. In fact, what we know right now from the $1.7 billion that was released to them under a, a disagreement, that their own budget this year says that all of that money goes to the military. As a matter of fact, I think it's true that they have increased the spending on their uh, military by 90%, I think. That is not the sign of a country that's been in economic woes for 10 years 
or more and are now trying to help build their economy and moving away from this nu nuclear effort and their um, attempts at supporting um, uh, terrorism in the region and Bashar al-Assad. So my question, let, I want to go to the German specific, Mr. Dubowitz. Can you talk to me about the intelligence reports, the report from the Institute of Science and International Security about the carbon uh, acquisition attempts? It seems like it's not just one report, that something like seven of the nine states or whatever that looked at it have come back with evidence that these indeed have been endeavors that, that uh, Iran has been undertaking. Can you address that for us? Correct, Senator Perdue. So there, there's a federal report. There, were, there are 16 German states that issued their own intelligence reports, of which eight have been made public. Um, my colleague in Berlin, uh, Benny Wienthal, has been pouring through them in German, looking for uh, the details. And the details are quite striking, that Iran was engaged in significant illicit procurement of nuclear, ballistic, chemical, and biological weapons-related technology. Um, but what I find most troubling about the reports is the response to the reports. The administration, uh, instead of blasting the Iranians and saying that we, we absolutely op oppose this kind of malign activity, we will aggressively enforce U.S. sanctions, and this kind of behavior up to the negotiations of the JCPOA and after the negotiations of the JCPOA is completely unacceptable and is a violation of the, of the JCPOA, which has a specific procurement channel through which the Iranians are supposed to be going. Uh, instead, from the administration, we got uh, excuses from the German Foreign Ministry, a, a remarkable response. The German Foreign Ministry said, well, um, we're not concerned uh, because these are clearly Iranian hardliners trying to undermine the moderates. Well, of course they're Iranian hardliners. The Iranian hardliners are in charge of the nuclear program, the missile program. They're in charge of Iran's terrorist activities. They've got in charge of Iran's vast system of human rights abuses. They're in charge of all of the destabilizing activities that Iran is engaged in. So the fact that the hardliners are engaged in illicit procurement is not a reason uh, to be reassured. It's a reason to be even more concerned. And so what I would hope and expect from this administration is aggressive enforcement. And as David Albright has said, there are significant concerns that the Obama administration is actually blocking prosecutions and investigations of Iranian illicit procurement. It is not a posture that we want to take. And I agree with Senator Corker. I mean, I think our economic sanctions snapback is delusional, but I think their nuclear snapback is actually incredibly powerful. And we've seen a year of this. It's deterred this administration and the Europeans from vigorously enforcing non-nuclear sanctions at a minimum. And so the Iranians are, are constantly going to invoke this threat to walk away from the deal anytime we try to push back, even in ways that are allowed by the JCPOA. The longer we allow that dynamic to continue, the worse it is for American national security. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. One of the arguments that Iranian opponents of the nuclear deal have raised is that the United States has failed to provide Iran with the sanctions relief we promised under the agreement. For example, in an April speech, Ayatollah Khamenei said, the reason big banks are not ready to work with Iran is Iran-phobia, which the Americans created and continue. However, this statement failed to acknowledge Iranian policies that reduced the willingness of foreign firms and banks to do business with Iran, although the IAEA has reported that Iran is in compliance with the nuclear deal. Iran continues to engage in other provocative actions, including providing funding and weapons to Hezbollah and conducting ballistic missile tests. One of those ballistic missiles reportedly had the words, Israel must be wiped out, written on it in Hebrew. These activities produce investment risks that companies cannot ignore. And furthermore, 
Iran's economy continues to lack transparency. Who actually owns many of its businesses is difficult to determine. And foreign firms can't be sure that they are not doing deals with front companies for individuals and entities that are designed uh, and designated under sanctions aimed at Iran's support for terrorism or its human rights violations. Mr. Nephew, do you agree that at least some of Iran's difficulties in reaping the economic rewards of sanctions relief has been the result of its own domestic and foreign policies? And what can we do to ensure that the U.S. is not inaccurately blamed if Iran does not experience the economic growth that many Iranians hoped for when they supported the nuclear agreement? Senator, thank you very much for the question. I 100% agree uh, that the Iranians are dealing with the consequences of their own internal issues in addition to issues associated with low oil prices and the presence of residual uh, U.S. sanctions. In fact, I think in this point, I I'd like to disagree very strongly with Mr. Dubowitz about the uh, likelihood and the effect of a potential U.S. sanctions snapback. Uh, frankly, I've, I've spent a lot of time talking to international businesses and banks throughout Europe and Asia. That they believe in snapbacks so strongly, and they believe our residual sanctions are so impactful, especially Sasada, that that's part of the reason why we haven't seen them start to, to facilitate the big sorts of deals that the Iranians uh, were expecting. So I think, you know, quite to the contrary, the idea that snapback and residual sa sanctions have no impact, I think the Iranians are experiencing some of that building on top of the economic mismanagement that they've been engaged in for so many years. And I think, you know, frankly speaking, our sanctions were effective in the first place because we took advantage of Iranian economic mismanagement. We took advantage of the fact that they squandered $650 billion of oil revenue over the course of 10 years. But they were effective then, just as they are now, by taking advantage of the fact that the Iranians still don't have their heads on straight. And so I let me ask you this then. One of the questions about the long-term impact of the nuclear deal is how it will affect Iranian domestic politics. On the one hand, following the agreement, reformist and moderate forces allied with President Rouhani were elected to a majority in parliament. On the other hand, the deal has also produced a backlash by hardline forces allied with the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and the Supreme Leader. That backlash included the election of Ahmad uh, Janadi, a hardliner, to head the Assembly of Experts, which is the group that will decide Iran's next Supreme Leader. It also has consisted of a crackdown against opposition groups, resistance to economic reforms, and vocal opposition to a broader involvement of relations with the U.S. And a poll released last week showed that Rouhani's lead is narrowing over his possible challenger in next year's presidential election, former President uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Mr. Nephew, how do you assess the overall impact of the agreement on Iran's domestic politics? What are the prospects for peaceful reform in Iran over the next few years? And how will U.S. policies influence this process? Uh, and are there suggestions that you have for congressional action? Senator, thank you. I, I would say a couple of things. I mean, first off, I think that the nuclear deal, uh, to some degree, undermines the argument that all of Iran's woes are to be held at the, uh, the feet of the United States and our international partners. In fact, Iran's leaders now have to contend with the fact that they've done a pretty bad job delivering for their citizens. In fact, they've done quite worse with the treatment of their citizens. And I think, ultimately, what's happening in Iran now is a manifestation of these tensions that have been under the surface in Iran for a number of years, ever since the revolution. And I think we are seeing the contest now coming very public 
uh, over issues of economic reform, uh, political uh, 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 you know, placement of who's going to be in charge of what, what bodies. In terms of what kinds of policies we can engage in, I think first and foremost, we need to be able to demonstrate to the Iranian people as well as to the international community that we've upheld our end of the bargain in the nuclear deal. And I think this goes to the issue of not undermining it with actions we might take, but also ensuring that um, our sanctions are very clear, they're very transparent, people understand what they can and cannot do. And, and this goes to some of the ideas that I, I put forward in my testimony earlier. Yeah, and, and just in the last you know, couple of weeks, and you can see the politics worsening, like in the United States, in Iran right now, where um, two weeks ago the deputy head of the Revolutionary Guards threatened that uh, 100,000 missiles are ready to fly at Israel. So we can already see the sides dividing up here uh, in terms of the politics in Iran, and unfortunately sometimes the most radical voices get the most attention, uh, notwithstanding the underlying um, uh, reality that a country doesn't want to have a war, doesn't want to have economic instability, and rather find a peaceful route. So thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to both of you for being here today. Mr. Dubitz, I'd like to start with you. You've heard some talk about procurement in Iran under the JCPOA, uh, the JCPOA, excuse me, the, the agreement that was taking effect January 16th, 2016 initially, uh, and uh, procurement under that date. Uh, if you look at the recent study by Institute for Science and International Security, uh, and I'll quote from that report, the Institute for Science and International Security has learned that many previously sanctioned Iranian entities are now very active in procuring goods in China. Uh, these entities experienced sanctions relief on implementation day or January 16, 2016 of the JCPOA. Those now active in China include Iranian entities that conducted at least some procurements for Iran's nuclear programs. They include, for example, companies involved in making or procuring aluminum, steel, or other raw materials. It is unknown which goods these entities are procuring or buying in China. Nonetheless, many of these formerly sanctioned entities are well versed in making illicit procurements and their resurgence in China warrants special scrutiny and concern. That's the uh, report from ISIS. Can you describe the extent of the Iranian proliferation activities in China, how the Obama administration is responding, reacting to these developments uh, that you're aware of, and uh, we can go from there. So, Senator, I've seen no indication that the administration is doing anything uh, to push back against Iran's illicit procurement activities. And I would also think that this brings out a very important point. These are entities that were listed then delisted, and they're back to their old malign activities. Right. So if we are going to take the posture that we are not going to relist entities or relist sectors that are engaged in Iran in malign activities because somehow that's a violation of the JCPOA, what are we doing? We're granting a blanket immunity to any individual, any entity, or any sector to actually get back to business. And when I say business, I mean malign business. So this is all the more reason why when we find these entities and individuals and sectors that are engaged in these malign activities, particularly non-nuclear malign activities, but also violating the JCPO through illicit procurement, the administration has to enforce the law. And the administration has not done so. Again, there's been, there have only been 20 designations in the past year against missile procurement networks and Mahan Air supporters, all of which have been highly ineffectual and, and highly weak. Now, the United States isn't the only party to this agreement. Obviously, China is as well. What steps, if any, has China undertaken to stop these illicit activities? I'm assuming they have not exactly done, or perhaps they've taken the same 
role or, or course as the United States? Well, certainly, according to Mr. Albright's reports, they've, they've done nothing. If anything, uh, middlemen in China are helping, are, are helping facilitate and enable that illicit procurement. What do you believe Congress ought to be doing about these uh, allegations? I think Congress needs to pass. Excuse me. Well, I think Congress first needs to get the administration up here and ask the administration what they're doing about it. And second is Congress needs to, through its statutory authority, um, pass new sanctions that, again, the, the sole purpose of which I believe is to reestablish American determin deterrence. I mean, as somebody who spends their life looking at sanctions, I think these days it's actually less important, very specifically from a technical point of view, what those sanctions say, and that Congress reestablish American deterrence with respect to Iranian illicit behavior. The Iranians believe they can literally get away with murder, and the past 12 months since the JCPOA, I think, confirms that, that impression. And uh, keeping with the theme of listed then delisted, uh, during last year's deliberations uh, and of the nuclear deal, you actually testified before this committee, and you talked about the investigations that, that you have done and your organization has uh, undertaken on Treasury's delisting of ICO, uh, which was the conglomerate controlled by the Ayatollah Khomeini. Uh, worth about $100 billion, ICO, uh, in the reports. Could you talk a little bit about an update of what impact the relaxation of U.S. sanctions have had on an organization like ICO, what they are doing? Are they earnings being diverted to international, uh, international terrorism, other finances? The subsidiaries owned and controlled by the Supreme Leader are doing business with European companies. It's quite a remarkable phenomenon that these European companies, Italian companies and other, are doing business with the Supreme Leader's holding company and in doing so, enriching the Supreme Leader. Now again, if you think the Supreme Leader is going to use all of that money to, for the betterment of the Iranian people, so be it. But I mean, I think there's evidence, decades-long rap sheet of financial crimes that would suggest that the Supreme Leader will be using that money, or at least some of that money, for illicit activities. And ICO itself, as far as they're concerned, I mean, they, again, uh, participated in activities that ought to be uh, worthy of uh, sanctioning again. They, they certainly are. I mean, I, I think this actually brings up a great example of, of just not to, to divert this briefly, but Iran Air. I mean, Boeing is about to do a $26 billion deal with Iran Air. Just last month, Iran Air flew three resupply routes from Abadan, Iran, which is the IRGC resupply base, to Damascus. I mean, it's a great example, like ICO, like Iran Air. These, they get delisted, and then they're back conducting malign activities, and yet we're going to be permitting Boeing to do major deals with Iran Air, which is essentially supporting the IRGC, and we're going to be allowing Italian companies and others to do business with the Supreme Leader's holding company. I mean, this, these are the consequences that I warned about last year, and, I th and I'm afraid that this is only going to continue, and the snapback itself becomes increasingly ineffectual to the point that it becomes delusional as these businesses go back, as the money goes back, and as the Europeans are in a position where they have their business interests to protect, right. they're not going to join us in a major snapback of U.S. sanctions uh, if and when we all decide that there actually has been a violation. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I know we're in a vote, so thank you very much. Uh, I know Mr. Nephew wants to respond. We do have four votes that have gone off, and, uh, but, but go ahead. It, it won't take but a second, Senator. Um, so the only point I would like to make, sir, is um, that Mr. Dubowitz, in his comments, he, he made a very important logical uh, leap that may be true but may not be true, and that's that all the activities that you were citing, procurement activities in China, uh, air flights between Iran and Syria, are malign, that there are Chinese companies in China, or Iranian companies in China now who are buying things that they shouldn't be buying, that there are, in fact, IRGC resupply routes being run by Iran Air right now. 
to my knowledge, there's no public evidence about this. And in fact, sir, the quote that you read from ISIS even says, we don't know, in fact, what these companies are procuring. And so the, the question of whether or not the administration's responding goes to an if issue of evidence. And as Mr. Dubowitz knows well, our European friends are having a lot of trouble enforcing their sanctions because they made a lot of decisions absent evidence. And in my view, we should absolutely enforce remaining U.S. sanctions, including snapback of sanctions on companies that engage in activities inconsistent with the JCPOA. But we got to know what they're doing before we can take those actions, sir. Well, Senator, the German intelligence report, I think, was pretty clear uh, in blasting the Iranians about procuring equipment and technology that can be used for nuclear, missile, chemical, and biological purposes. That was confirmed by eight other German state intelligence agencies. Uh, Mr. Albright actually goes through in a lot of detail talking about the procurement of carbon fiber and why that's such a concern with respect to Iran's advanced centrifuge program. And if Mr. Nephew would like to convince his State Department officials, uh, former colleagues, to come up here and present the evidence that Iran airs flight patterns that have taken place all through 2016 from, a re from Abadan, Iran, where there's an IRGC resupply base, to Damascus, or actually Iranian civilians going on vacation to Damascus and are not Iran's malign activities, I'm sure Congress would be very interested in hearing that explanation. But as far as I can see, and we follow these flight patterns on a daily basis, they're flying false transponders. I mean, they're actually, their information is sending out false transponder information showing that the flight is actually from Najaf to uh, Iran and not from uh, Abadan, Iran to Damascus. Why are you using false transponder information if you are actually doing something that's not malign? Highly suggestive of, of some illicit activity, I would think. I'm a, Senator Cardin, I think, may have a closing uh, statement. Just and really, we have about five and a half minutes, yeah. by the way, left on the vote. I, I just really want to draw the distinction. I don't think there's any disagreement here about enforcing our sanctions for non-JCPOA activities. I don't think there's any disagreement about strengthening our sanction regime in regards to non-JCPOA activities. The question is, where do we draw the line and what is our priorities? And what I've raised is that there are executive authorities that are not backed by legislation. Would it be helpful to have a legislative backup for those executive authorities? There are, uh, uh, there are uh, new sanctionable activities uh, that there is no authority today. Do we want to give additional authority where it, we don't have today. That, that, that's something we should consider. Then we have to consider the mandatory nature of the sanctions by Congress, the ability of the President to waiver, waive those for different reasons and what standards should be used there. These are all issues that we're going to have to deal with. But I think the real challenge is how do we reimpose, how do we have a sanction, a new sanction regime that is not in violation of the JCPOA because you're, you'll be subject to the concern that we're reimposing sanctions that have been released. And we can do that through new activities that are non-JCPO related, but that line is not always easy to draw. And I, so I, I don't want to just, there's been a lot of statements made today about having stronger sanctions. I'm for that. It's in my legislation. It's in the, the Corker Menendez legislation. We're for that. But the question is, where do we set the priorities, and how do we draw those lines, and under what conditions? And we didn't really get into much of the discussion today on that, but I would welcome your help and expertise as we try to draw those lines. We have a seven-week period starting this afternoon, and I hope we use that time to really drill down 
on a lot of the specifics here because the details are going to become important. Some of this is disagreements between the legislative and executive branches of government. We know that. We know how to deal with those problems. Believe me, we do. But we, on the substantive issues are going to be areas that we're going to need help. I want to thank you for coming. We have tremendous access to you all, and so I'm not going to take any more time, especially with what's happening on the floor right now. I do want to say that, let, let's be honest, um, we would have already passed legislation here, uh, but the fact is the administration is pushing back against any legislation, even if it meets, even if it meets the description that Senator Cardin, Cardin just so aptly laid out. That's what's happening. And the reason the bill was introduced today, as it is, which does not in any way touch the JCPOA, does not, it, it, it aptly fits the description that our ranking member just laid out, is to move that along. And I do agree that over the next seven weeks, I hope that we'll be able to come together and pass something prior to this administration leaving and certainly us leaving office this year, because uh, there's no question that Iran is pushing the limits. Uh, no question that our European friends are pushing back against us doing anything, and let's face it, a lot of that is their business interest. There's no question that Russia and China are tamping that up, uh, excuse me, tamping that down, and, uh, and the fact is it's time for us to take action. So I thank you both for being here. If you could, and, and the fact that both of you agree that we should be taking those actions. Again, that don't cross the line into the JCPOA, but push back against nefarious activities that are underway, to me is uplifting. So thank you both for Mr. being Chair, here. Just 30 seconds. There's no administration, whether the Obama administration or the Bush administration, that wouldn't like to see Congress go away. So I agree with you on that. There's, there's <laughs> unity there. Yeah. So I, I can yeah. assure you that when I introduced my bill on behalf of my colleagues, it didn't get a Rose Garden reception at the White House. So yeah. I think we do have that challenge. I, yeah. And we're, we, we've yeah. got to do what's right. And right. the independent Congress can be very helpful in uh, dealing with these issues. So I look I forward to working with you. So the record will remain open until the close of business Monday. If y'all could fairly promptly respond, we would appreciate it again. Thank you. I want to thank the folks who are here in support of Camp Liberty. Um, you've been here day in and day out. Uh, we passed something out of our business meeting today that supports your efforts. Uh, we thank you for your continued patience, but also uh, strong, strong support of family members, allies, friends that you know have been persecuted in a way that they have. Thank you for being here. And with that, the meeting is adjourned.